And so today we are going to be in Mark 6. We are going to be starting off in verse 14, and we are going to be going through verse 29. Mark 6, 14, 29. And I will read our text for us, and then we'll pray and get into our text. Mark 6, verse 14 begins this. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying, Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask, I will give up to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came and immediately with haste said to the king, I want you to say, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with his orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. God, this is a good word for us to understand what it means to be sheep who are sent out among wolves. Would you instruct us by it to be wise as serpents and to be innocent as doves? And Lord, would you also show us what it looks like to have a deteriorated conscience, a conscience that even recognizes the law of God but suppresses the law of God because of a love for sin. I ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would eradicate our evil, sin-bent, sin-loving consciences. What we see in this text is that we, while having a conscience to do what is right, have ignored it and numbed it. Would you help us to not do that any longer? Instead, would you help us to see your law, to see it as good, to embrace it, to buy into it, and to obey Jesus? Lord, we thank you so much for Christ and his grace to us. We love and praise you in his holy name. Amen. Last week, we were in Mark 6, verses 7 through 13. And in those verses, we saw the commissioning of the disciples to go out into all the world. 
And as we were observing this verse, we observed it next to its coinciding verse in the book of Matthew, which is found in Matthew 10. But what's interesting about this verse is it leaves off a portion that Matthew includes. That portion beginning in Math 10:16 begins something like this. I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. Therefore, you are to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Now to clarify that picture for us, Jesus is saying, I'm sending you out to be persecuted. I'm sending you out to be martyred. I'm sending you out because people are not going to like what you say, and you might even have to risk your life. But you'll notice, Mark doesn't address that. Mark doesn't mention it right here. And so we ask the question, well, why not, Mark? Why didn't you include that section about sending us out as sheep among wolves? Was that not good enough for you, Mark? Was it good enough for Matthew? What I think and what I want to contend for us today, Mark is doing, is he doesn't want to just tell us what it looks like to be sheep among wolves. He wants to show us what it looks like to be sheep among wolves. What's interesting about this text is we enter into another Mark and Sandwich, where what Jesus has been doing is he's been talking about one story, and then he's going to insert another story, and then we're going to go to another story. Remember, we have the bread, and we have the meat, and then we have the bread as well. And it's the same thing. And what I think Mark wants to do is he wants us to show us what it looks like to be martyred, what it looks like to be persecuted. But what's interesting as he does it is he sets as the backdrop Herod's conscience. Herod's conscience. And as we observe how Mark is going to be persecuted, what we are going to see along the way is a man who has a guilty conscience, but a man who saw God's law and even at some point wanted to embrace it with his conscience, but then what he did is he suppressed the conscience. He ignored it. He became numb. He became calloused. And this should sound familiar because it's very similar to the world we're living in. Where every, and it's always been this way, really. Where every single person has God's law inscribed on their hearts, as Romans 2.15 says, but then they have done what? Suppress it. They've, ignore, they've ignored it. They've become numb to what God has written in their law. And so what we're going to observe is two things in this text. First, we're going to observe Herod's conscience and his interaction with truth. So Herod's conscience and his interaction with truth. And then what we're going to see is we're going to see the darkening of a conscience and how a conscience can even permit evil to come. So those are our two things that we're going to see. So beginning in verses 14 through 16, we pick up with King Herod, and he's heard about this man named Jesus. And it's awesome to think that he's heard about Jesus because Jesus has been performing all these signs. He's been casting out demons. The gospel has been getting preached. And now even a high official and authority like Herod is going to hear the message. So what does this give us a picture of? gives us a picture or an idea this communicates to us that God's message is spreading, that everyone is starting to begin to hear it. But as Herod hears it, he's going to kind of suppress it. He's going to reject it. He's not going to want to hear that this is Jesus, and we're going to inspect the reason why. He hears this, and he hears, some are saying that John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. 
Now we're going to see what that's about in a second. But then in verse 14, others are saying, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. So what's he doing? He's hearing about Jesus. He's hearing about this guy who's doing all these signs and he's performing all these miracles and he's getting this big calling to come after him and he's hearing the rumors. I wonder if it could be Elijah. And Elijah is one of the miraculous prophets of old who does some awesome signs and does some awesome miracles. Or maybe it could be a prophet. It could be a prophet like Moses. But Herod doesn't buy into that. Herod doesn't buy into the idea that it could be any of them. Instead, what he says, he says, I think it's John. But then notice what it says after that. John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Now, I want to go behind the text in a way to something that the text is going to later reveal to us. I think the reason why Herod is quick to suspect it's John is because Herod has what we would call a guilty conscience. Herod has a conscience that is wrecked by his sin that he committed. See, what that verse 16 does, it opens us up to the rest of the story that we're going to see, which is where Herod martyred John. Herod killed John. Herod, Herod, Herod murdered John. And what's Herod feeling right now? He's feeling guilt. He's feeling shame. And his conscience is burdened. And so the first thing that it comes to his mind is, oh, it's got to be John. He's come back from the grave, and it's as though I think he might even be thinking, he's coming back for me. To put this in perspective, this is what we often experience. Whenever we do something wrong or we betray someone, and then maybe someone finds out or we're confronted by that person, and maybe they don't even know. Oftentimes, we are quick to fess up to our wrong, to fess up to our guilt, and we're quick to say, yes, I did it. And it's like what Herod is doing right here is he's fessing up and saying, I did wrong. And John's coming back for me. This past week, I was talking to my mentor from back in western Kentucky, and he was telling me about a trip that their college ministry is going to go on over in North Carolina, and we were talking about the details of it, and I mentioned something to him about the trip that I actually wasn't supposed to know. And the reason that I knew about this event that was taking place was because of another friend who had told me. And I mentioned it, I completely forgot in the moment of the discussion that I wasn't supposed to know. It wasn't necessarily a big event. But I mentioned it completely forgetting about this event and he wasn't taken off guard. He just kind of was like, okay, whatever, no big deal. And he keeps going through the conversation. But later in that day, my friend, and this is my actually friend Aaron, who many of you know, he calls me. And he's the friend who told me about that event that he wasn't supposed to tell me about. And so I'm thinking, ah, dang it. Aaron knows that I told him, and now I'm going to get in trouble. Immediately, my conscience ticks, right? And we begin to talk, we begin to talk, we begin to talk. He doesn't mention it. I'm just thinking, okay, guess he doesn't know. No big deal. But then he mentions, hey, did you know that I talked to Chris? Chris is the college pastor, right? (laughs) But then he keeps talking and talking and talking as if nothing happened. And in reality, he didn't know anything of what took place. And eventually, in the middle of the discussion, I just said, hey, you're going to hate me, and I'm really sorry that I did this, but I told him about so-and-so and so-and-so, and and he's just like, oh, dang it, you didn't. 
What was happening there? Did I have to confess? Did I have to recognize my wrong? In a way, yes, but in a way, no. In a way, yes, because my conscience was ticking. It was ramping up. The tension was feeling it. I knew I was in the wrong, and I had to say something. I had to say, I'm really sorry I'm in the wrong. And that's very much what I think Herod's feeling right here. He knows he's in the wrong, and his mind immediately goes to John the Baptist. It has to be John the Baptist. Now, this opens up to the rest of the story about Herod and John the Baptist and what was taking place. So in verse 17, we see that Herod, he arrests John the Baptist. So look at me with, the t- look at, with me at the text. Verse 17 reads this. For it was Herod, for it was Herod of, sorry, yeah, verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Strange scene. What's taking place right there? is John the Baptist, as we're going to see in verse 17, and I'll just read this for us. Um, Sorry, verse 18. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And so John had been preaching this message to Herod because what Herod had done, and by the way, I'll just back up for a quick second, sorry. Herod is not Herod the Great who appears early on in Matthew's gospel, who is the one who kills all the babies. This is Herod the Tetrarch. And this is Herod the Tetrarch, who is Herod the Great's son. Now, remember, Herod the Great, he killed all the, he killed all the babies back in Matthew 2. I mean, if it's his son, is it going to be much better? No, it's not. It's not going to be much better. And what you see Herod the Tetrarch doing is he sees his brother Philip's wife, and he thinks, I'd like to have her as my wife. And so he takes her as his own wife. And John the Baptist, being a prophet in the New Testament, begins to acknowledge this, and he begins to proclaim the truth in relevance. He begins to tell everybody, do you see what Herod's doing? Do you see that he took his brother Philip's wife? And do you not see that that is wrong? And he gets locked up for it. It's the beginning of him being hunted like a sheep by a wolf. He's locked up for it because he's preaching the truth and because he's preaching it relevantly. And I want to say, John the Baptist is a very good model for Christians today. John the Baptist is a very good model for me today in this sermon. In a world today where we do not embrace truth, in a world today where we do not embrace calling out one another on our sin, John the Baptist does both things. Notice he recognizes his context. He recognizes the sinful nature that he's in, nation that he's in. And he recognizes the people that are going to hear this. And he recognizes that maybe if Herod has taken this wife, the other people will think it's okay. And so he addresses it. He deals with the issue. Very much like we should be doing in our culture today. We should be engaging with issues that are not according to a biblical ethic. We should be engaging with people and ideas that are not following the law of God. But what's most important about this, and I need us to hear this, when John the Baptist engages Herod, he does not engage him on the basis of tradition, preference, or convenience. Sometimes I think Christians, when they engage with the secular world, they engage them on issues that are just inconvenient for them. Or they're not relevant to their past. 
or to their tradition. Notice what John is saying. He's saying, and this is very significant, he's saying, it is unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, why is it unlawful? What's unlawful about that? Well, first thing it does, it's committing adultery. That's the seventh commandment. Next thing it does, it's stealing. That's the eighth commandment. And then another thing that it does is it covets his neighbor's, literally his brother's wife, breaking the 10th commandment. What is John's basis of accusation on? It's not on his preference. It's not on his tradition. It's on the law of God. He is examining Herod right here, and he's examining him next to the law, and he's saying, you fall short. You've missed it. And Herod, you need to repent. You need to give back this woman, back to Philip, because you're missing it. Christians, we need to be Christians. Yes, we need to be relevant in today's day and age, and we need to speak to the issues, and we need to be engaging Man, we need to hold the word of God with it. If we come accusing someone, if we come engaging with someone, we better come on a biblical basis. And I want to say, I think this is an area where this church, um, I think we've really grown a lot in. This past week when we were having our discussion on deacons and deaconesses and adopting that statement, I told Ashley this walking away from the conversation even though we had some good questions and some tough questions and some tough comments that were raised, I was so happy with the conversation because you know what people were saying? They were saying biblical things. They were quoting the scriptures. They were raising issues attached to the Bible that we were talking about. It didn't come from a place of, oh, well, that won't work here or we haven't done that in the past as if it's tradition or pragmatism. Brothers and sisters, We're not a church of pragmatism of what works, and we're not a church of tradition because people did in the past. We're a church of God that's based upon the word of God. And if we're going to engage with people, I'm not telling you not to engage people, never know. Engage with them upon the just and righteous standard of God. Not upon what you prefer, what you don't prefer. Now, this, if we do this, Oh, man, people are going to hate it. <laughs> people won't like it, and, and I'm not just saying um, people in a secular sphere won't like it, but people in the traditional sphere won't like it. And if we want to think of kind of politically, people sometimes in a leftist perspective and sometimes people in a rightist perspective are not going to like this. It's true. People from whatever agendas they're going after, they're not going to like the biblical perspective if they're bound to those other perspectives. And what I want us to buy into is first the truth. And listen to how Herod, Herod's wife reacts to this. She doesn't like this. Imagine that. Verse 19. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. I think if John the Baptist was alive today, he would get the same comments. And I think if we did the same thing today, we would get the same comments. But I wonder is if we did the same thing as John the Baptist does right here, we would actually still be considered Christian. Do you get what I'm saying? 
I think sometimes if we speak the truth into certain areas of life, especially on the area of marriage and sexuality and the area of divorce and separation and those things, if we speak to those issues, we're going to be immediately labeled as unloving. Um, John the Baptist definitely got that label right here. No doubt about it. People are not going to like this. And so I've been hitting this because I think it's been in the text of Mark lately, but we can't expect to be liked. Instead, we should expect, once again, sheep among wolves. And so while there's one sense, there's this tension that comes from one side, right? There's a tension that will come from the world. I want to be very clear. There also should come an attraction. There should come something that says, I don't know what it is about that Christianity, but it's interesting. I don't know what it is about that Christianity, but I kind of like it. I mean, sure, yeah, do they say some things that I don't really buy into right now, but oh, it's, it's, it's something, I don't know what it is. Because while Herodias hates it, verse 20, Herod, he can't get away from it. Listen to what he does right here, verse 20. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Wait, what? I thought Herod would hate John the Baptist. I mean, John the Baptist is the guy who's been calling out in the wilderness. He's been saying, hey, look at his sin. He needs to repent, and if any of you do the same thing, you need to do the same. But Herod, he's attracted. Why is this? The reason why this is, and I don't have the text on the screen, is because God, as it says in Romans 2.15, has inscribed his law on our hearts. And our consciences, because of the law of God on our hearts, will either accuse us of our wrong, they'll convict us, or they'll excuse us and continue us on living in sin. I think right now Herod, even though he's in some deep sin, I think his conscience is convicting him. And there's something right here about this holy man who's righteous and, not perfect, but who's righteous, who's pursuing God and believing God. And he says, I don't know what it is, but I want some of that. Imagine many of us in here have had the same experience. That was my experience early on. I remember when I was first beginning to investigate Christianity, I was hanging around some Christians who were friends of mine, and they invited me to go to St. Louis with them on this Christian conference. I remember at this Christian conference, they were praising God, and I mean, they had bigger speakers and more of a band, but it was kind of like this, you know, it was like a rock concert of a Christianity thing, like, like you know, people were going crazy, they were worshiping, the speakers were really good, like really good speakers, but they kept talking about this Bible thing, and they kept talking about Jesus, and they kept talking about how I need to believe in Jesus and I need to walk away from my sins. And I remember in the midst of that, and I saw all the Christians having fun and having a blast and loving it, I was just kind of like, I want to go back. I don't want to be there. But I remember as soon as I went back, I thought, I want to get back to St. Louis. I want to be around the Christians. Some of you know this experience. Some of you might even actually be experiencing this right now where you're wrestling with, there's something about that Christianity 
that holds to truth, that holds to salvation in Christ alone, that holds to the wonderful news of eternal life for all who believe, and I want it. But you're wrestling. And you're wrestling with the same thing that Herod's thinking about right here. Will I have to abandon my wife, Herodias? Will I have to give up all the life that, my, that I've given myself to? Will I have to give, in my, give up my ways that I've actually had my father implant in me? Like, what am I going to do? I mean, yeah, John the Baptist, I mean, he's way different than me, and he lives this very different life, but I got all this. I got the life over here. Which one am I going to choose? And I want to contend with you, brothers and sisters, who are wrestling with that issue right now, who are thinking, you know, I'm torn. I don't know where I'm going to go. I want to plead with you. Don't do what Herod's about to do. Because what will happen to the conscience if it continues to reject Jesus, if it continues to reject the gospel, it will become hard. It will become, it will become numb. It become calloused. And I want to make one thing clear. There is not someone in here and there is not someone on this earth who is out of God's reach. God can save anyone. But the Bible also makes it very clear, and we actually saw this tension today in Proverbs 1 in our, in our Sunday school, that God gives people up. I'm using the language of Romans 1, and he says it three times. God gives people up who continue to numb themselves and make them callous to sin. Gives them up, gives them up, gives them up. And while I completely hold intention one side of God can save anyone, there is a great reality that the scriptures teach that though there are those who are not going to come. And those who are not going to come are very much of what's going to happen to Herod right here, I believe. Where Herod is wrestling with the tension. My conscience convicts me, but in one sense I want to go the other way. And what Herod's going to do is he's going to say, I'm going to reject that. I'm going to continue to go down, 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 down in my sin. And he's going to commit the worst of sins. And it's not as though he's unredeemable, but it's as though he is unredeemable. Look with me what happens to Herod. After Herod is wrestling with these issues and dealing with the issue of truth and do I accept it, do I buy into it, it's as though he suppresses it. He says, John, forget you. I'm going to go after my own life. Verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And I want you to know that this was no small banquet this was a very large banquet that probably took place for more than just a day, probably took place for about a week, maybe even more, and there was lots of food, lots of things for people to delight in, lots of carnal delights, as we're going to see here in a second, and man, he got to indulge, and I'm sure there was drunkenness and all other sorts of ways to enjoy life like the world would offer, right? Sorry. <laughs> Notice what comes next. It's not just gluttony and drunkenness that he's indulging in. Verse 22, this is one of the sickest pictures we get in the book of Mark. Verse 22, when Herodias' daughter, that's his stepdaughter, by the way, this is Herod's stepdaughter, came in and danced, 
She pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. I don't think this was some hokey pokey. This was some erotic sexual dance that his stepdaughter is coming in and performing before all these men. And commentators, when they talk about this, they imagine that it is probably a tradition for kings to have young women come in and dance before them and please them, and then whoever had the best dance, whoever essentially aroused them enough, excited them enough, they would make an offer to. And notice what Herod does. He makes an irrational offer. He essentially is gambling right here. An irrational offer to this girl, little girl. You can have whatever you want. The picture is sick. But the picture is of a heart that's completely calloused and numb. I think Herod is reaching a point right here where he's heard the truth. He's heard about righteousness. He's seen the holiness of John the Baptist. And he knows John wouldn't do something like this. But he said, I want to party. I want to enjoy carnal delights. And then I'm going to even act irrational. And I'm going to pledge half my kingdom to this girl. It's not even just that its heart is carnal. Listen what the girl goes and does. Verse 24. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Verse 25. And she came and immediately in haste said to the king, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Just notice real quick. Okay. He's around all these men who are indulging in this woman's sensual dance. And then he sends her out, ask whatever you want, but then, his, then her mother, we want to kill a guy. We want to murder someone. And I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. Think about the scarring, the terror, the horror that they're doing to this young woman right here. She's committing sensual acts. And then you got her going asking, let's kill someone. Let's have someone murdered. Herod is in one of the darkest scenes. He has one of the darkest hearts. And the people around him are the same way. It's not only his conscience now. He's surrounded himself with dark people. This is what sin does. As was said earlier in Sunday school, sin can seem fun for a season, but it takes you further and further and further away from the law of God. Herod's completely abandoned holiness and righteousness that we hoped that he would embrace at the beginning of it. And now in verse 26, he's going to be completely torn. I think he is genuinely torn. Verse 26. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. So I think right here, Herod, some people look at this text and they think, oh, Herod's just pretending. I don't think he's pretending. I think Herod really is like, oh, no. John the Baptist, who I protected and who I actually thought something of and who I thought I could actually follow. But I've embraced this lifestyle. 
and I've made this oath. And if I break the oath, what will all these kings, what will all these commanders, what will all these people think of me? Herod has got himself into a place he's not coming back from. I need every one of us to hear, Christian, non-Christian, sin will get you to a place you will not come back from. And yes, you might even for a moment be like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be in this place. I don't want to do this. You will be stuck. Your desires will hold you there and you will be tied by something. And Herod, he's tied by this oath. And because he lives for men and he lives for the people's approval. And then he goes and he has John the Baptist killed. John the Baptist, who was like a sheep, is beheaded. And then John the Baptist's brother, John the Baptist's disciples come and take his body away, and they put it in a tomb. And it's as though what's happening right there, as John the Baptist's body is being taken away in the tomb, that dark, cold, dead place is a symbol of Herod's heart. Sin will do terrible things to us, brothers and sisters. It will put us to death. This is a terrible story with not much hope. But I do want to say this last thing. There is one further text that later on in Mark Mark, six, Mark 16, actually, that later reveals that same word, tomb, where John the Baptist was laid in a tomb. But it's not about John the Baptist. It's about another one who has gone there. And he has died on a cross, not for his sins, but for the world's sins. And he has died there and been put in the tomb. And then Mary Magdalene, Mary his mother, and Simone come for him to see him, and they can't find him. And there's a person there who's standing, and he says, he's not here. He's gone. What is the greatest cure for a calloused, numb, dead, cold conscience? It is repentance and faith in not John's tomb, but in that Jesus' tomb is empty. That Jesus did not just die in vain. No, Jesus died for our sins and that he rose from the dead so that whoever would believe in him and trust in him would be saved. I ask you, do not continue like Herod on, thinking which way am I going to go? Believe in Christ. Believe in the empty tomb. And walk away from a cold, dead conscience. Let's pray. God, would you rid our consciences of callousness? We know that we will always sin, for there is not a man or woman who does not sin. And I ask that you would help us to trust in Christ, I ask that for those in here who do not know you,
that they would turn away from the sin that's enticing them right now and is begging them to buy in and buy in and get more, I ask that they would see the evil that will come. I ask that they would not continue in their ways, but would turn from their sin, trusting in you, pursuing holiness and righteousness. Lord God, I also pray that we would be people like John the Baptist, people who are not afraid of the truth and are not afraid of engaging with others, people who go out and proclaim your gospel and proclaim your word. Lord, we thank you for Christ and his love for us. We praise you in his holy name. Amen.